uh, we've come to our last evening together, and uh, this time tomorrow evening we'll all be in <laughs> different spaces, places, states uh, of being. I don't know where we'll all be, but this retreat would have dissolved and uh, we'll be scattered here, there places and we'll have the challenge of integrating uh, what we've been doing into whatever happens to meet us whatever comes into the field of our awareness it's rather daunting image that Delphine gave of walking back into the jaws <laughs> makes one feel a bit <laughs> well it does sometimes feel like that <laughs> Um, you noticed on this retreat we haven't really concentrated the, the retreat around um, emphasizing very tranquil states of mind in some retreats that is more the focus there's been more the, uh, balancing between doing some work for the body and then the chanting the, the discussion groups so that uh, not such long extended sitting, sitting and walking, so that there's been an opportunity to develop some sense of attention, awareness, mindfulness around all these different uh, aspects of the day. Um, and I think this is partly because we found from our own training that the approach is rather than necessarily focusing on producing a particular state of mind in meditation, one that may be dependent on certain conditions of stillness or environmental control or tranquility, um, developing more an attitude or view um, or approach to life that's adaptable, that can be integrated into all aspects of our life, that that might yield um, tranquil states of mind, but ultimately will yield uh, wisdom or clear seeing as the fruit, um, which uh, directly leads to to freedom from suffering or freedom from wrong view or wrong understanding about the the nature of life. And... uh, I think perhaps this right attitude or right view, the first factor of the path or balancing, um, is possibly one of the most important uh, aspects of the path um, because we can practice with a lot of wrong understanding um, which might yield some fruits but might not necessarily lead to the freedom of suffering that the Buddha was so concerned about Uh, and certainly when I started my practice 20 years ago uh, with the retreats that were going on then there wasn't so much teaching around as there is now um, and meditation was very much associated with attaining uh, special experiences or special states of mind when I reflect back, I practiced with enormous amounts of wrong views, <laughs> which uh, took me a long time to begin to understand that. 
because basically there was a lot of desire operating, desire to get somewhere based on an assumption about self, which I hadn't even looked at, the assumptions I'd made, and desire to get away from uh, from uh, the experience of being uh, embodied in life um, and and the meditation that um, I was encouraged to do very much almost um, reinforced some of those views. Um, a lot of focus on technique. Uh, a lot of focus on attaining or developing uh, concentration. Um, but not much contemplation on the states of mind, states of being that one could experience. Not much contemplation directly on the nature of mind, the nature of self, as we experience it, which is very, very fundamental to begin to contemplate this nature of self, how it's located, how it operates, how um, the mind tends to contract around notions of self, um, which inevitably has the, the feeling of time, beginning, ending, uh, the, the, the essence of our feelings being caught in the, the experience of samsara. So I'd go on these retreats and we'd start at four in the morning and sit for 12 hours um, without walking, without even eye contact, uh, not eating after 12. So it was very, very strict and that all fed into my feeling of I'm really doing something. <laughs> and we sort of go hammer and tongs at this meditation technique and uh, using quite, I mean, enormous amounts of willpower, really, and having a horrendous time most of the time. <laughs> uh, experiencing enormous physical pain. Um, but every so often I'd kind of push through to these refined states of consciousness um, and push through a certain amount of physical pain, screwing up my knee in the process, which I've been paying for ever since. But however, every so often I'd feel this sort of stillness and, and subtlety, the body just very subtly vibrating and just subtle energy and very peaceful and think, oh, that's it. As I was saying the other night, that's, that's, what, that's what it's about. But of course, as soon as I walked out of the retreat, I just feel complete failure because yeah, I found it impossible to cope uh, with the everyday coarseness. So I rushed, would rush back to a retreat, and I think I done did dozens of retreats like that. Go and do a retreat, get into a reasonably refined state, very controlled, leave the retreat situation, and then feel uh, unable to cope. Although I wouldn't have actually articulated it like that, and then rushing back to a retreat situation. Anyway, in the midst of that, I came across Ajahn Chah, who is um, a uh, pretty impressive person to meet. Um, and uh, I was struck very much the very first time that I met Ajahn Chah. I didn't really understand what he was saying, but I was struck very much by the quality of his being. Uh, he was just very, very present, very powerful in a way, but there was a tremendous humor, lightness, and compassion, but a tremendous sense of freedom around in his in his being, and a, and a pretty direct approach. Uh, one of the questions he asked me um, one day, I I went with a friend 
had a friend from Italy, and I said, you must come and meet this meditation master, he's amazing. And I just sensed, I didn't quite know why he was amazing, I just sensed he's just, you know, someone that really knows what he's talking about, and he's kind of, he's done it. And I didn't really know about monk's etiquette in those days, so uh, he was staying in a retreat centre that I used to visit a lot outside of Oxford, in a hut. Um, he had a very brief visit to England at that point, so I just took this Italian friend and went and knocked on the door of his hut. <laughs> Which is, you know, you're not supposed to do things like that. But anyhow, Ajahn Chah opened the door and Ajahn Sumedho was there with him and another monk. And Ajahn Chah invited us in, which was very kind of him, and sat down. And I've been used to before this very sort of radiant, joking, humorous presence. But when we sat down in the hut, I suddenly felt like I was in the lion's den because his whole uh, persona had changed. And there was just this, you know, this kind of emptiness. He wasn't like playing any games. He was just like, just there. And I sort of started to feel a bit nervous. And <laughs> I was a bit agitated. And Ajahn Shah said to me, what meditation have you been practicing? So I thought, oh, an easy question. I can answer that. Well, I've got this technique and I <laughs> start off watching my breath and then I watch the sensations of my body and then I, and I sort of kind of felt pretty confident and talking and the more I was talking, the more uncomfortable I started to feel. And, sort of, and he's, he's kind of sitting there pretty kind of, I, just, I can't describe that kind of space he was in, but it was like there was just no one there really. And I just kind of petered out and sat there. And then he said, he said, uh, do you understand the teaching of no self? Yes, yes. I'm, yeah. <laughs> um, that means, and so I started kind of launching into this kind of, and then halfway through I started to peter out. And I felt like I'd been walking the plank. And I just, and the more I was talking about non-self, the more this sense of self started to grow, like this kind of huge thing. And the more empty Ajahn Chah was becoming. And in the end, I just sat there. I just petered out and I sat there and I just felt this huge sense of self. Totally embarrassed and my face was red. And it's like he had my ego by the throat. <laughs> and he says something in Thai. And Ajahn Sumedho refused to translate. And he said it again. And, uh, and Ajahn, uh, Ajahn Sumedho turned around to me and said, uh, this is the, uh, many of you know Ajahn Sumedho, the American monk. And he said, Ajahn Chah said, you're very ignorant. <laughs> <laughs> so that just finished me off. I just like... <sighs> and uh, then he... <laughs> I mean, meeting Ajahn Chah was an ordeal. I mean, you just put your life on the line. And he, he just kind of gave this talk about no self. And... Uh, you know, it was uh, kind of somehow we got out that hut and uh, Grazia and I were just kind of like, we were in actually fits of giggles. It's like a kind of reaction. <laughs> but, uh, but that was Ajahn Chah's style. He, he would um, very much go for the, the jugular vein. He, he would say things like, and he didn't sort of uh, pretty up his language, he'd say things like, uh, he said, um, he said, walking around with, you know, holding a sense of self, he said, it's like walking around with a, with a bag full of shit. He said, you, you put it down somewhere in a place, and you're like, that smell, it smells terrible here. Yeah, it's rotten. And you pick up your bag and you walk off somewhere else, and then you put it down somewhere else. And it, this isn't a good place either. I must find a place to 
<laughs> it smells good, and so you pick up your bag again. And, uh, I mean, it kind of gets you the message, the message home. That was that was very much. I mean, he didn't care if he was talking like that to rich Bangkok uh, upper class ladies or peasants. He was just very much. And yet there was tremendous humour and, and compassion. It wasn't like he was doing that to to just put you down. I mean, it actually, strangely enough, felt an honour to be. It felt like someone at last was being truthful uh, and cutting through so much of the pretensions of life and honouring you by feeling that you could take that um, directly. So that began gradually. I I was sort of drawn, I suppose, like a a piece of uh, metal to a magnet and Jinchar had that uh, effect. Um, drawn into the net and consequently landed up learning more over the next years. This approach that they that he had encouraged towards practice with the um, monks and nuns in Thailand and lay people in Thailand. Um, and it's in this approach very much about um, looking directly, looking at the mind directly, um, looking how the sense of self locates. Uh, where it, how it operates, looking at the four noble truths. It's very much the style we've been doing. And he would be very um, careful if people got very, very attached to wanting to just dwell in refined, still states of mind. He'd send them off to the village festival. You know, and if people were very sort of, a, you know, stuck on just kind of um, distracting themselves, he'd encourage them to, to practice uh, perhaps on their own and develop inner strength. So there was more this sense of adapting to what the person needed rather than just saying, just do this technique or this style and just hack away at it. Um, but this is the whole establishment of right view, knowing the path, knowing how to, to really get a sense for what the path is in life. Um, And there's different ways of talking about the path. Uh, talking about this sense of refuge or finding, um, realizing perhaps rather than finding, so finding sounds like you've got to search somewhere, but realizing uh, a point of balance. Legend child called Samadhi. Um, one-pointedness in balance, which is kind of an interesting way of talking about it, rather than necessarily one-pointedness on an object, which we tend to associate samadhi with kind of almost controlling the mind. And he said, you know, if you think samadhi is like kind of stopping the mind or getting it all still, he says, you might as well sitting, be sitting there dead. He said, you know, that's like sitting like a dead man. He said, there's going to be movement. You can't stop movement, even if the mind suddenly is very, very still. Sometimes you can feel when you sit, the mind goes very, very still. There's still subtle movement, the heart beating, sound coming, the pulse, the blood flowing, vibrations in the body, heat and cold. Um, and the mind is a sense. It's sort of going to flicker, perceive, pick up. But knowing, being able to know directly in each moment, how things are. This is the establishment of right view, being able to really see 
according to uh, impermanence, according to feeling where suffering arises, according to seeing it as, as anatta or not uh, not self, a place where we shouldn't necessarily cling or hold. And this way of talking really begins to reveal to us uh, how how much perhaps there is a sense of self or where a sense of self motivates us. If we practice to get somewhere from self-view, I'm going to get somewhere, then we're always going to feel frustrated or a sense of failure. If we practice, uh, we can do numerous meditation retreats like, like I did. We can do numerous prostrations and mantras and practices. But it's, if it's coming from the point of view of me attaining something from a, a, an ego position, then there's always going to be the feeling of, of sort of never quite either getting there or, or, or sort of like trying to hold something that you can't hold or find something you can't find. And it's very much caught in time, the sense of me getting somewhere. And this is a view that, that can be very subtle, that can really come into our practice. Um, So we can we can spend years sometimes trying from a sense of self to attain something, acquire something, rather than seeing the sense of self um, directly in its nature and relinquishing that. So practice is really being able to really see how that very sense of uh, I need something or more or that attaining mind, that whole sense of self operates and just being able to see it very clearly um, in each moment and relinquishing the tendency to grasp and realizing the sense of just abiding in this point of, as Ajahn Chah talking about, the point of balance, the point of awareness, or in being, in awareness. And in that process, really, there's nowhere any, anywhere else to go. There's, there's really nothing um, anymore that's needed. I'm not talking on the relative level where there is, perhaps there's lots of things that are needed and so on, but I'm talking at a more prof- more subtle level perhaps, really looking at this tendency to try and get somewhere, get something. One of the blocks that classically they talk about to, they have this notion in Buddhism of entering the stream or tasting nirvana or this this realization when one lets go of the, the three forms of desire, trying to get somewhere, get away from something, trying to become something, when we, we see that whole construct and just rest in that relinquishment, then there's a sense of just being uh, in a more timeless space. And they call this, this uh, realizing a place of peace, realizing a place of refuge, a resting place, tasting um, the Dharma. Or in the, another way they talk about this is knowing the path, because once one gets a sense for that, then you can always return. However uh, much we might get overwhelmed by the different states, there's always the ability to come back to right view, to clear seeing in this moment, how it is. And this is very much the experience of just relinquishing, um, or or getting in perspective, perhaps, um, self-view. 
And it's not to say on some level there's, there's something wrong with self-view. It's there, but it's just the attachment or the wrong understanding about it that can create so much the sense of me going somewhere in time. This isn't a very easy um, thing to talk about, so I'm (laughs) trying to articulate something that I don't find that easy. But anyhow, (coughs) the way they talk about the things, three three, um, things that can block this... this realization of, of um, entering the stream or the tasting of nibbana, um, one of them they talk about as um, holding views, you know, according holding a sense of self, creating that around different views about life. And so, in this clear seeing, it's rather than holding a view about how things are, we see view as views. So we might have all sorts of views about ourselves, about each other, about what's going to happen in the next next millennia or all sorts of views that we can have and rather than being directly connected um, with the suchness of each moment there's a view there so this, that's the first block that's the, the, a way that the sense of self is created through holding different views about how it is it's like this, it's like that um, and views can be fine too but they're very relative they're very changeable, though again, they're not something we can completely rely on as being totally the truth. They're only a view, they're a partial perception, if you like, a partial way of looking. We don't really see um, the whole picture, so there's just... So in, when we see with clear or balanced seeing, uh, we see view as view, uh, rather than as a, a self, then this is, this is an obstruction that no longer... Um, deludes us. And then the, the other obstacle that can come to this uh, uh, entering the stream, as they talk about it, is, is belief in, they talk about belief in rites and rituals, which we might think, oh, well, that means, you know, if you believe in lighting candles and praying to God that you're going to get somewhere, that's, I can, that's pretty clear for me. I don't have that problem. But we can approach our meditation in a very ritualistic way. Um, operating from, again, an attaining mind or a self-use. Me doing something, me kind of... Uh, rather than seeing that whole notion of me, there's a feeling of me sort of, if I sit enough hours, if I watch my breath enough, rather than actually seeing where is that coming from, where does that actually operate from. Um, and so it's quite subtle, because obviously the breath and, and practice is, is very helpful, but if there's that view, if we haven't actually seen that initial uh, sense of me doing something to get somewhere, then our whole practice is not is, is going to always be in this gaining mode and always this sense of, 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 of frustration in it, or of trying to hold on to a particular um, state or, or situation, and, and this adaptability that Ajahn Chah was so much trying to encourage us we don't get it because you know we're like the one carrying the bag around. Uh, <laughs> um, and the third one is not understanding doubt, the nature of doubt, which is again a quite a subtle insight to have around doubt because doubt always um, the doubt when they talk about the great doubt taking one to emptiness, it's actually using doubt to allow the mind to stop. Well, who? We've been, we were working on that. Well, who is it? Who is sitting? 
um, who's practicing. But if we don't understand doubt, if we don't see, when the mind is in doubt, then we are trying to find an answer, a solution, uh, again, creating a view, creating a, a, a solidity or a, this sense of self. Um, so seeing doubt as doubt is an insight that just gives the sense of, again, of letting go of relinquishment. And that relinquishment is the direct connection with the here and now uh, path of just being awareness connected to the next moment, the Dharma of the next moment, or this moment, how it is in this moment. And this is the way that they talk about a more, more subtle understanding of the path, really resting, if you like, just in that uh, um, awareness or in attention. In, in, and then noticing from there the different movements of getting somewhere, not getting anywhere, um, which give a sense of beginning and ending and birth and death and time. Um, so when, when Huang Po, the sixth patriarch, said there's absolutely nothing to attain. He wasn't uh, telling a fib. <laughs> That's the way it is when we, when we can really start to look at a more subtle level at how the self you operate, how this notion of that I'm, I'm going to get somewhere rather than seeing that whole fabrication of I'm going to get somewhere is, is uh, part of that, the arising and passing of the conditioned phenomenon. So when the, the Buddha taught his teaching, there's a way that they, in the Mahayana, they talk about uh, the Buddha taught his teaching not so much for us to get somewhere, although it might be presented in that way, but for us to leave suffering so that we can arrive at where we've always been. And he, in the Lotus Sutra, he talks about how we're like children in a burning house, playing and running around and not really realizing that the house is burning. And the father comes along and sees his children in this house and thinks, God, they're in danger. And the father's like the Buddha. And so the father calls, come out, come out, children, you're in the burning house, you're, you're going to get burnt, you're going to suffer, come out. And the children look and say, oh, <laughs> carry on playing, not even knowing that it's burning, uh, that they're feeling hot. <laughs> and so the Buddha says, oh, well, that doesn't work. So, so then he devises these, these sort of tricks and says, well, come out, come out of the house. I've got toys for you. I've got a sheep cart and an ox cart and a deer cart. I've got all these things for you to play with. And of course, desire, something to get. So all the kids trample on each other to get out the door first. Um, and they get out and of course there isn't actually any toys um, to play with, but they've got out of the house. And you think, well... But what they, they, they begin to feel maybe is how cool it is. Uh, it's just not burning any longer. And they say, oh my God, it was really hot in that house. <laughs> um, it was really uncomfortable. And I didn't even notice how uncomfortable it was until I stepped outside. And so this kind of analogy with uh, realizing nirvana is like the cooling, or, or just getting a sense for what it's like to to not be caught in in the grasping mind. Um, 
the deluded mind in, in the, in the uh, desiring mind, never at peace, roaming, looking, searching. So although they say there's a path to be developed, we talked about Four Noble Truths, uh, the truth of suffering, dukkha, to be understood, needs to be understood, needs to be embraced, worked with. The causes, tanha or craving, need to be let go of or abandoned, seen and, and no longer followed. And that those two truths pertain to the world of uh, samsara and then the world of enlightenment or development are the, the neuroda, this is what I've been talking about, the letting go, the relinquishment, the cessation, the realizing. Um, I was talking the other night about the, the unconditioned, the spaciousness, and then the, uh, which needs, needs to be realized. The Buddha said that needs to be, it's not something you can get or um, attain, it's just a realization, it's, it's ever present. In, Eternally dwelling, uh, to be realized, to be seen directly. And then the fourth truth, Makkha, the path which needs to be developed. And it's not like there's someone developing the path, but the path is just something to be developed. It's not like me going in there, I'm going to go and develop the path. It's just something that starts to happen. And the more mindful, the more attentive we become, and the heart of that path is this attentiveness. It's the very, very heart of it. I was talking about the um, being really allowing, in a way, our natural wisdom to operate from that point of attentiveness. And the whole of the path, you know, or, or bringing our, our life into harmony, uh, feeling when we go out of harmony, allowing our attention or our awareness to feel what it's like when we've done or said something or are doing something that, that's creating a sense of suffering. Just allowing ourselves to feel that so we can come back rather than seeing that as a drag and then trying to kind of cover that feeling with, with sort of overlaying it with something else. Just saying, well, that's teaching me that perhaps I need to look somewhere at how I'm kind of out of, out of balance, out of sync. And that sensing of, of being out of balance, the Buddha talked about that feeling he's different ways he talked about it, but he said it, there are two ways that you can, two qualities that the, that the heart has, that, uh, that guard, guard against, uh, um, guard us as, as human beings, against going into uh, situations that are going to create pain for us. And he said these two qualities are important to listen to, and he called them guardians, loka, loka pala, guardians of the world or guardians of the heart. And he said one is, is called, they're called hiri otapa, one is called um, fear of wrongdoing. It's a sense like if you're going to do something that doesn't quite feel right and you get this feeling come up, then to recognize that, you say, well, that's a guardian, that's something that's actually helping one stay balanced. Um, so a, a sort of dread at wrongdoing or fear or an apprehension you think, no, that's not quite right. And the other one is like when we have done something that's out of balance, out of harmony, you cause it a sense of shame or, or a feeling in the heart that that wasn't quite right. And that's not necessarily guilt, which where we create a self and a, a neurosis out of it, but just the feeling of, 
the pain that might come when we're out of harmony and allowing that to come into the heart that we can feel. And this is the very core of the sila, or the whole sense of training our life to be in harmony with that which is balanced, harmonious, wholesome. And he said, when these guardians are no longer there in the world, in people's, in the co- in people's consciousness, if you like, no longer operating, then the world moves into decline. Um, so as an individual, there's the tendency, when we can't really hear those two guardians operating, there's the tendency to move into uh, states that can be potentially, or situations or actions that can be dangerous. But also, you can see that on a global level, how little those that people, some, uh, how little there is of those kind of natural guardians of the heart operating. They've been so overlaid with the desires and uh, distortions of the ego. And that's the very foundation of the path. And so there's, in the Eightfold Path, there's right, clear seeing, as I've been talking about, the clear seeing, and then based on that, intent, how we intend on our life what we intending it towards awakening, making it very conscious rather than a haphazard affair. That's why when we take the refuges, we don't just take it once. You know, just like it slipped out your mouth. Buddha-sarananga-chami, you, you say, dutti-ampi, for the second time, for the third time. So you're making it very, very conscious, even though part of, you know, part of us is resisting and screaming and chattering and, you know, kind of thinking about this, that and the other allowing at least for us as consciously as we can to say, well, I'm intending my life towards the realization of Buddha, of awakeness, of really being awake, clear, wise to the world rather than overwhelmed or deluded, inclining to the Dhamma, understanding the nature of the Dhamma, the nature of this conditioned world, world, understanding the, the Amata Dhamma, a place where all things cease. And Sangha, this potential we have to actually move in that direction. So this intending, the second factor of the path, intending the consciously the heart, mind, and then the, the others that follow, speech, act right, speech, right action, livelihood, are all about then how we, which is what we'll be working on as we go out from this retreat, how we relate in relationship. Um, bringing into harmony our, our, our actions and our speech, how we make our living, um, which is a big area to contemplate, our relationship to resources we use, to money and so on and so forth, um, to this earth, to each other. Um, and again, our guide is really in our, in our, if we listen, learn to really listen, is in our heart. And then the other factors are the ones we've been, of the path that we've been working on. Effort, uh, mindfulness, and what I like to see, the fruit of the path, Sama Samadhi, rather than Samadhi being this concentrated, rather brittle state, seeing that the fruit of the path very much as the uh, unshakable heart, the unshakable heart of, of deliverance is the way the, the Buddha talked about the heart in its natural state. So it means that in this, rea- in this fullness of samadhi, rather than samadhi dependent upon a meditation retreat or 
sitting quietly or not speaking to anyone in the fullness of samadhi, then the conditions of life will come and go. There will be praise and blame and happiness and unhappiness and things will come and test us and things will come to support us and we'll get worried about things and we'll have to make decisions and all, all of the flow of life will be there. But in this fullness there's a, a quality that can more and more be unshaken or not shaken at every little movement, every little flicker. Um, and the heart of that, again, is just, just seeing. So as we move out of this retreat and sort of start to, you know, embrace, if you like, the whole of our life in this practice, just seeing those conditions that really help and support us, and rather than getting caught in the view of something to attain or something to get rid of, or trying to hold a particular state, or trying to hold on to an experience in the retreat, just rather taking the attitude, saying, well, this is the way it is now, how is it now, and how can I work with this now, how can I be mindful now, and trusting that our ability to be attentive in, in this moment now, in each moment, know, knowing that our refuge is in, in being, uh, just being in awareness. And self will be there, um, the person, the sense of the individual or person will be there, but it's not like, it's like it's in perspective. Uh, It's not sort of, there's less and less delusion about it. Less and less attachment. So this is our Our challenge really as we, we take this practice uh, and broadening our sense of what meditation is, taking it into our conversations, the, the, the times of the day when we go unconscious, and we find, you know, noticing the habits or the times when, when the mind goes into fuzziness or uh, lack of clarity or, and just saying, well, this is time to be really you know, to, to notice what's going on now. That's interesting. Uh, and finding situations, this third refuge of sangha, that really support us, really help us, really encourage us, nourish us. This is so vital. If we don't consciously really find that and bring that into our life, um, then there's so many other influences, so many other directions that we can just flop around in that, that, that in a way the mind naturally tends sometimes just to to fall I think we have to really work to kind of to, to align ourselves with those influences those things that are really going to help us support us so I think I think that's enough for tonight and um, tomorrow we can continue with these reflections on um, maybe Kijisara will have something to say and maybe we'll ha- have a chance as a group to talk about ways that you may find helpful ways of practicing in everyday life to share 
which is always helpful if anyone's got any hints or tips to share ways of integrating this mindfulness, irrigating the whole of our life with this awareness, tension. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.